You're welcome to go ahead and start making your way to your seats. If you haven't already, we're going to begin in song together this morning. I want to invite you to go ahead and stand. As we do, we'll begin a song together singing with and for our children. And I will turn to you when the night is falling And when the sin is called And when I can't see straight and the smoke is in my eyes And I will wait for you when the future's blurry Amidst the rush and hurry When the pain is real and the questions arise There's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean There's no top to your mountain No end to your sky There's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean No top to your mountain Going to your sky There's no limit to your love Sing that one more time There's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean There's no top to your mountain No end to your sky there's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean There's no top to your mountain No end to your sky There's no limit to your love Alright, you can grab a seat. Well, good morning everybody. Happy Memorial Day weekend. It's good to see you. Good to see those on home at Zoom, on Zoom at home, at home on Zoom, whatever you're at. Um, um, but hey, excited to be here to worship together. Um, excited that it, we're not sweating on Memorial Day. It's uh, it's been a blessing these last few weeks to enter summer in such a cool fashion, uh, which is not normal, right? And so um, sometimes when things aren't normal, like it kind of gives us pause. We don't really know how to respond to it. But in this case, I hope that your response has been like. Uh, Praise Jesus, because <laughs> we know what's coming in the next few weeks. Um, we, will, we will long for a morning where we can uh, not have to worry about walking outside and sweating. So, so I don't know about you, but I'm, I am grateful uh, for a morning like this morning, not just because of the weather, but also because we get to come together in a place like this, where we get to step outside of our rhythms, that's right, Sam, and uh, come into a context where we can set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus. And that's what we desire to do, right? Like we, we will, over the next hour or so, um, open the scriptures. Uh, we will uh, sing songs. We will receive communion. We will try to listen and hear what the Lord has to say for us, to us, for, um, for one another, um, through his word and through um, his word spoken to us. And all for the idea, all for the intention that, that when we leave here, we might actually be ones who follow Jesus. Um, that the rest of our week isn't just kind of going through the motions or doing the things that are normal, but in the ordinary things of life as husbands and wives and roommates and classmates and uh, employees and employers and all those kind of things that we can actually live like Jesus, that we can be like Jesus in those normal contexts and places. 
And so that, that is our, our entire desire out of this. And I know we say this every week, but it, we need this reminder on a weekly basis, right? That this life that we live is not meant for just moments like this. This life of faith is actually meant to be lived throughout the day, throughout the week, together with others who are living it with us. And that's really our focus um, today. That's what our focus will be as we continue to dive into uh, what it looks like to follow Jesus together um, as we kind of continue this practical look about what it looks like um, to be a faith family. Um, Again, pilgrimaging our way to the Father through Jesus. And so as we kind of come out of a week uh, hopefully full of stuff, um, and we go into a week probably full of more stuff, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we ask the Lord to, to help us to be aware of his presence with us now? Uh, why don't we quiet our hearts and calm our souls so that we might actually be able to be attentive to the one who says where two or three are gathered together, he is here also. So we pray with me to that end? Father, we thank you for mercies that are new and sufficient that allow us, Father Lord, um, often in, despite ourselves, Father Lord, to be in your presence. Lord, mercies that allow us to, uh, to be with others who are with us in trying to become like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did. We thank you for a family of faith. We thank you for your scriptures that remind us um, of how long you've been at this thing of redeeming and saving and making new. But most of all, we thank you for Jesus who gives us life and breath. And so we just pray in your spirit that we would have ears to hear what he has to say today, um, that you would allow us um, to release whatever it is that we're holding to that will keep us from him today, that you allow us to, um, Lord, be filled in such a way by your love and by your presence that we are able to walk in ways that are new and fresh and full and holy um, in the week ahead of us. All this we pray, Lord, with, um, with humility and, um, Lord, expectation. Because your son died and lives now and rules and reigns. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. To help us enter into this space of delighting in the Lord, we've asked Lily to come and to read a psalm for us. Come on up, Lily Lou. Psalm 34, 3 through 6. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and breathe his faithfulness and find safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord. Keep company with God and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way, your life's journey to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do whatever needs to be done. He will validate your life in the clear light of day and stamp you with approval at high moon. invite you to stand. Thank you, Lily. We'll just continue together in song. Just remembering God, our rock, our redeemer. Sing this together. Marvelous, wonderful, infinite God. Author of all that is good Faithful provider and giver of Source of all power and love Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise 
Refuge is strength to the end Righteous Redeemer and mighty to save He's the anchor of hope for the souls of men Gracious, compassionate, merciful God Radiant, holy, divine Beautiful, Father, victorious Source of unchangeable life Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise Refuge of strength to the end Righteous Redeemer, mighty to save Hope for the souls of men You are light in the dark You are healing for the broken heart You hope you are Lord You are life, you are love and joy Powerful, constant, unwavering God Shepherd who comes for the law Rock of salvation, remarkable love Savior who died on the cross Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise Refuge of strength to the end Righteous Redeemer, mighty Savior, He's the anchor of hope for the souls of men. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, refuge of strength to the end. Righteous Redeemer, mighty Savior, He's the anchor. Hope for the souls of men So if you have young ones You're welcome to go ahead and start making your way back to their to their rooms the rest of us if you're gonna be hanging out in here um, While the kids go back. Let's just continue together in song
Satan tempts me to despair And tells me all the guilt within Of what I look and see in there Made an end to all my sin Because the sinless Savior died My sinful soul is counted just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me hallelujah hallelujah praise the one Him there, in perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One man himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. my Savior and my God. Father, we thank you for this morning to be together, to be in your presence, to meet you in one another as we share fellowship, share in your scriptures. Lord, raise us up to newness in life. Show us the fullness of life that Jesus offers. May we walk together um, into this next season where you have so much planned and prepared for us beyond what we might imagine or think. Lord, may our hope, our strength be in you. In Christ's name, amen. You're welcome to be seated, and then I'll turn your attention to this, the monitor down in front. Allie is going to lead us in a reading from Scripture. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. 
That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too. The real you, the glorious you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 20. We'll get there in just a few minutes. Um, so for those new with us today or who weren't here last week, um, we, uh, we have this rhythm where um, we spend a few months in a particular passage of Scripture, a book of the Bible, um, trying to engage with God through His Word. And then as we kind of come out of that, as we listen, we try to, we try to figure out how to respond to that. And so in these seasons of practically what it looks like for us, um, to follow Jesus, because we don't believe that the Word's given for us just to know, but to, for us to live. And so we have this rhythm of how do we live this out together. Um, and so last week we started um, a season, what would be about a month, of kind of asking the question of how do we become like Jesus in community? What does it mean to become a family of faith together? Um, how do we do that? What are the practices and practical ways that keep us on the way with Jesus? And, uh, you know, like we said just a few moments ago, every time that we gather, uh, we do so to set our minds, attention, and hearts, affections upon Jesus. That's why we get together on Sundays. It's why we enjoy Sundays. Um, but we, we do this so that we can step out of our ordinary rhythms of daily living so that we can follow Jesus back into those ordinary days, those ordinary roles and relationships of everyday life. Right? We don't just step out of this place to worship God, to forget, um, to, to do some sort of religious act, to kind of get our uh, inoculation of what we need of Jesus and then kind of just depart for the next six days. We do this so that we might be aware of and present to Jesus with us throughout the rest of life. That we might actually be ones who get to enjoy the life, um, 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 experience the life that Jesus says is abundant in him. We, we are ones who rest our hopes that life is life with God, that the hope of life is life with God. Then we trust that who he is, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done is all we need for abundant and eternal life, life to its fullest and life forever. And if you think about it, follow me is the invitation at some point that I would imagine most of us um, um, have responded to when we first encountered Jesus, right? That... This is the invitation that we see throughout the scriptures, that Jesus doesn't just say, believe in me. He says, believe in me. Yes, sure, certainly, like, recognize me, but then follow me. He invites us into something. And it's our response to his invitation that brings us into fellowship with one another this day. It's our continued response that brings us into places like this on a regular basis, into community of others who are following Jesus on the road to where Jesus is going, and keep coming back to those people. And as we saw last week, the, the place Jesus is going is, is a place. It, it's a place to the Father. John 14 says this. It says, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house is where he's saying that I'm going. I will come and will take you to where I am. You know the way to where I am. I am, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We looked at this extensively last week, that Jesus is taking us to a place, and the place Jesus is taking to is a place of the, the Father. The path we share with Jesus leads us to life with God, our Father. A destination that is a presence, a relational proximity to the creator of life, the one who said um, when life first began that it is good and very good. 
An abiding which assures that we will truly and wholly be who we are made to be. As God who speaks life into existence and commands and determines what life looks like in its fullest. In His presence is where Jesus leads us. To, as Thomas Burton says, an ultimate end in which our whole nature and capacities are fulfilled as we are brought into contact with the one we seek. A place where we get to be all that we're meant to be as we come in contact to the one we seek. United to God, our Father, in a union of wills. Now the will is our heart and spirit. That is, it's a part of us that initiates and creates. The part of us that puts life into motion, leads us to act out the things that we're created to do and to be. It's this union of wills that makes us a family of faith as we follow Jesus. As we together relate and respond to one another as brothers and sisters and to God as Father. This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 3. He says, whoever does the will of God. In Luke, he says it this way. Whoever hears the word of God and does it, he is my brother and sister and mother. We know this as a faith family. We talk about this all the time. But we are called children of God. That's who we really are. That's what John says in, in uh, 1 John. John declared, the beloved declares to us because we've received Jesus' life and work, because we believe in who Jesus is and what he says he is true, and that what he's given us, therefore, is a right to become children of God. But here's the thing. It's not just that we're called children of God. It's who we are. That's our essential and core identity, right? But as John continues, he says, that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll end up? Who knows how we'll end up? We're children of God. That's who we are, but how we'll end up. How, do we, how are we going to end up in this relationship, this restored relationship with the one who created us, who spoke our life into being, and spoke us uniquely and particularly into his creation? I think that's the question we all want to find out, right, in life, to some degree. Isn't that what we're all after? That's what keeps us coming back to a place like this, to a people seeking the same thing we're after over and over again. That's what drives us. Well, to make sure that we get to experience this more, to make sure that we get to see some of the desires of our heart fulfilled in this God-given, Jesus-one identity, as we talked about last week, we employed the dual designations of apprentices and pilgrims. Not princesses. I've, I heard later that uh, when I say apprentices, sometimes it sounds like, like princesses. Sometimes I put the wrong phalasis on the wrong syllable. But here's what, here's what Eugene Peterson, how he describes these designations to help us fully get in on the way of life with Jesus together. He says this, an apprentice, when we say I call ourselves an apprentice, we're saying that we are people who spend our lives following our master, Jesus Christ. We are in a growing, learning relationship with God through Jesus, always. An apprentice is a learner. There's things that we're developing. There's skills that we're developing. But it's not in an academic sense, setting our, uh, in a setting of like a schoolroom. We don't learn to be like Jesus. We don't learn from Jesus so much in a space like this, where one person's communicating to another. But more so, we learn with Jesus at the work site of a craftsman, in the working out of life, in the creating of life, in the living of life. We do not acquire information about God so much as skills in faith. We've talked ad nauseum about this for the last few years as a faith family. Um, and so we kind of, to some extent, kind of get the idea of apprentices, that we're learning from Jesus how to live, how to live well, how to live rightly in relationship to God and to others. But we're not just apprentices, we're also pilgrims. And as a pilgrim, that tells us that we are people who spend our lives going someplace, going to God the Father. 
and whose path for getting there is the way, Jesus Christ. We realize that this world is not our home, and so we set out for the Father's house together. That's what we're doing. So we're learning from Jesus how to live life as together we walk with Jesus to home, to the place that we're meant to be, in relationship with the Father who created and sustains and gives life, not just in general, but in particular. This pilgrimage, we don't take alone, right? But we join with our brothers and sisters in Jesus who are hearing and responding, who are listening and responding to God with us, right? Any life of faith in Jesus, any life with God is lived in the company of spiritual companions called the church. A family of faith responsive to God the Father who, as Peterson continues, uh, announces to us early and clearly the kind of life into which we can grow and helps us set our sights on what it means to be a human being complete, whole and holy in the presence of God the Father. A community of people who explicitly and consciously submit themselves to the direction and training of Jesus through the Holy Spirit so that excellence is pursued in what? In becoming who we are in Jesus together. That's what the church is. That's what the church is at its core is meant to be. The church's name in the pages of our scripture, especially in the New Testament, are simply a fact. There's no argument about churches. Um, there's no arguing over churches. There's dysfunction within them, certainly. But they're, they're stated just as fact. They're neither idolized nor are they bemoaned. They are God's means of calling persons together so that they can realize who their Lord is, who Jesus is, and who they are, and develop the relationships that are coherent with those identities, with who Jesus is and who they are. That's why we come together to talk about who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus together. That's all. That's it. <laughs> Whatever else the church might be, an ideal or ambition or experience, in its God-fashioned essence, the church is a hodgepodge of spiritual companions, apprentices and pilgrims, a family of faith, those who are listening and responding to the Father, who are following Jesus as the way to home on earth as it is in heaven. Again, what, however else we've known church and experienced church, whatever ideas and visions of church we have at its core and at its foundation, that's what the church is. That's who we are together. Spiritual companions following Jesus as a way to home on earth as it is in heaven. And as we know, there's lots of complications in that, right? Again, the scriptures never, never idolize the church, nor they never bemoan the church. It's just a fact that we're on this pilgrimage together with other people. That we're baptized, not by ourselves, but into a relationship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by the person who dunked us under the water and brought us back up. And those who have had the same experience, who follow the same Jesus, right? And so how then do we live well together? Not just in a static environment, but in this pilgrimage, in this journey. How do we travel well to the Father, to becoming who we are all meant to be fully in relationship to the Father and one another? What does it look like to be on the road, the ancient way, the, everla the way everlasting together with, with patient endurance as siblings and partners in the life with Jesus? Well, over the next several Sundays, we'll attempt to answer that question not merely with ideas and images, but with practices. Things we can do together along the way to help us stay true to the path and purpose that has brought us together in the first place. So like if, you, if you've been a part of a faith family for a while, you know um, both in the app and on the website, we have this little tag, Following Jesus, and this is what helps us orient our lives. So when we wonder, what are we supposed to be doing in this, this life of, as an apprentice? Um, we, we go and we say, hey, like, here, we are to be with Jesus, we're to become like Jesus, we're to do what Jesus did, and there's practices that help us do that, practices that can be done individually, but also some collectively. 
Well, now we're trying to answer the question, what do we do together? So together as a gospel community, as a DNA group, as friends, um, of, of a people of faith within, within this life, how together do we help us stay on this path? What, do, what are some practices that can help us together walk out and see what it, where it is that Jesus is leading us to? And so understanding the church as a community of spiritual companions and friends on, a, on our way to life complete and forever with God, one of the primary things we do is stay true to what we are seeking. We help each other stay true to what we are seeking when we accepted Jesus' invitation to follow him in the first place. And we support one another in that desire, in that seeking. We, like the psalmist said and Lily read for us, we help one another delight ourselves in the Lord. We help one another keep company with God, recognizing that he will give us the desires of our heart, the things that we're after. Now, here's the thing. The Apostle Paul said in what, what Ali read for us a few moments ago, that what we're after when we ran into Jesus, or he smashed into us, or he did something for us that compelled us to follow him, like he, when, he, when we first encountered Jesus, what we were really after when we when we've accepted his invitation to follow him was new life, a resurrection life. What, what Paul would say is our real life, our true life, our life as it's meant to be. Now, I would guess that we probably couldn't have expressed our desire in those exact words of the time. Most of us probably didn't say, Jesus, I want real life. I want my real life with you when we first accepted his invitation. Nevertheless, what drove us to him and to stick with him all this time was the life we saw through Jesus. The life, our life that we saw through him. And what do we see through Jesus who lived and died and lives again? Well, we see a glorious life, splendid and radiant, as we saw in Revelation, where we were just the last month, right? All life knowable only when all the muck and entanglements of sin and wickedness, brokenness and pains, distortions and illusions are wiped away in exchange for something whole and wholly new. A life that is ours because it is his. When we look at Jesus, when we accept the invitation of Jesus to follow him, that's what we see. We see his life as our life. And isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the good news? That Jesus takes from us what keeps us from the very good of our God image being and trades it out with his goodness. I mean, isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus does for us. The good news that life in the tribulation, the muck and mire that we experience in daily living, can become life in the kingdom, the presence and reign of God at the same time. That we can live in the midst of our brokenness and sin and the world that we live in that's not quite as it should be and be ones who can know God, who can be in the presence of holy, who can become as we are meant to be in the image of God, all at the same time, tribulation and kingdom together. Isn't that good news? That we're not just waiting till the end of things, but in the midst of it, we can be who we are meant to be in Jesus. Is that not the good news that God is with us and that God is for us? And what he desires is what the psalmist said he will make happen. All we do is commit to being on the way with him and trust him. That's what we do. We commit our way to him, we trust him, and then he does the very thing that he said he would do. Give us the desires of our heart. To be holy and truly who we're meant to be in his presence. I mean, it's the paradox, right, of, of what Paul says later is uh, working out our salvation with fear and trembling daily, this idea of being in delighting in the Lord, being in his presence together with others, working out salvation daily with fear and trembling. What does he say right after that? Do you remember? For it, is that God, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
We commit our ways and we trust. We delight in his presence. And in so doing, God transforms us, makes us new. But here's the thing. Because we live in an instant society, we tend to think that this transformation is like that, right? Or it's supposed to be. And so we get disappointed and down and frustrated when it's not that. When, when today I say yes and amen to that, but tomorrow I still struggle with the same things I struggled with the day before. But remember what we talked about last week and what we saw in Hebrews, right? That Jesus is this great high priest who identifies with our weakness, who knows our struggles because he's went through all these struggles with us. Because in Hebrews 5, 8, it says he learned trusting obedience through the things he suffered just as we do. That going through this life, that how we get to being holy and purely and truly who we are in Jesus is going through this life with him. And that's the way we'll learn it. So it's not an instant transformation. It's this changing over time as we learn to trust him, to delight in him, and that he will do what needs to be done as we abide in him, as we respond in relationship to him. And here's where we need each other, right? Especially at a time in history when everything we see is trying to tell us or sell us on how we can become who we really are. What we need to be ourselves truly, right? I mean, that, that, is that not everything that's pretty much written and advertised in our culture? And, and not only are they trying to sell us and tell us who we, how we become who we really are, what we need to truly be ourselves, but also that we can be any self we want to be. So what we see in the passage, again, that Ali read for us, and Paul encourages, us, encourages his brothers and sisters in Colossae, is that to go all out for the life that we, to go all out for our deepest desires. Now, you might not have heard it that way, but let me, let's go back through it. That Paul is encouraging his brothers and sisters to go all out and live in step with their deepest desire. Again, what do we talk about with his deepest desire? To be holy and purely who we've been created to be, uniquely who we've been created to be in relationship with God and others. So, Paul says, if you're serious about living this new resurrection life, that thing that drove you to Jesus, the thing that you're after that keeps you connected to Jesus, then live it. Act like it. Let the desire that drove you, your will, get you going. Let your will be united with this desire that God has to raise you up into something new. Connect those two things. Pursue the things over which Christ presides, which, as we saw in the Revelation, is everything good, true, and beautiful, even in the tribulation, but most explicitly and effectually over the churches, those apprentices and pilgrims, that he's persevering to the end. What does Christ preside over most effectively and effectually? His people, his brothers and sisters. So don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Don't be so self-absorbed that you miss out on all that Christ is doing. Look up and be alert to what is going on around what? Around Christ. And where's Christ again? Where's Christ again? That's where the Father's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in those relationships, those lives of his children, those apprentices and pilgrims, the other people that are traveling the journey with you. That's where Christ is at work. That's where the action is. So see things from his perspective. See what he sees and what he is doing. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, the thing that we're after, even though invisible to spectators, hidden in Christ, known only through Jesus, is with Christ in God. It's with Christ. It's secured in Christ. It's found in Christ. Coming to Jesus, you'll discover who you really are what you really want, what really drives you. 
He is your life. So when Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too. When Christ shows up, you'll show up too. The real you, the glorious you. The you that is the desire of your heart. When Christ shows up, you show up. When people see Christ in you, they see who you really are. The glorious you. So this is what we're all after in life as we're following Jesus, as apprentices and pilgrims. Whether we can articulate it or not, our true selves, our full and forever life in relation to God and others. That's what we're after. That's what we long for. That's what drives us into making decisions and acting in life. Our real life with God is a desire that compels us to action, to know and experience our real life that is hidden with Christ, to know it not just in general idea, but in specific detail, in the realities of everyday existence. Desire that brings each of us into fellowship with one another. Again, whether we can or have articulated this way or not before. Each person in that company of spiritual companions we call the church is joining us along the pilgrim road and they're all after the same thing. We're all after the same thing. Which here's the beauty. It manifests itself in a kaleidoscope of beauty, right? We're all after the same thing. This who we really are in Jesus. But because God is the one who creates, God is the one who names us, God is the one who forms us and shapes us and knows us, what we get when we're seeking after our real selves is this kaleidoscopic picture of God's beauty and grandeur. It's not a... It's not a, some sort of um, um, just plain Jane image that looks the same from, from, from building to building, from group to group, from thing to thing, right? It's this kaleidoscopic beauty. The purpose of our shared life is to help one another live out who we really are, who God has made us to be in Jesus truly. This is why, again, Thomas Merton said it, um, that his spiritual friends and family do something different for him. They ask him different questions. He says, ask me not where I live or what I like to eat. Ask me what I think I'm living for in detail. And ask me what I think is keeping me from living fully for the thing I want to live for. Ask me not just the generals of life. There's a place for that, right? We have context for that. It's good to get to know each other in the generals. But at some point, to be spiritual companions, we have to ask what we think we're living for in the details of it. Not the generalities of it. I'm living for Jesus. Okay, so what does that mean? How does that look like? As what? As an engineer? As a stay-at-home mom? As a father? As a roommate? What is it? How, how, how are you living for Jesus? And what's keeping you from living out the thing that you want most? That you say you want most? So, if we're going to keep at this together for a, for a while, if we're going to help each other pilgrimage with patient endurance through tribulation and kingdom, we've got to help one another discover and stick on the path to becoming who we really are in Jesus together. And we, could, we do so through three things, through a, a together practice that involves three things. We listen to serve. We serve one another by listening. We help one another discern our desires, what we are living for. And we encourage one another to live congruently to God's desire for us. I'm gonna, let's, we're going to quickly kind of look at each one of these things, and then we're going to take a few minutes to practice some of this together. So, in his fame track called Life Together, appropriately titled, um, written amidst his imprisonment within um, the, the Nazi regime um, before it being executed ultimately at their hands, Dietrich Bonhoeffer concluded, um, concludes in his wisdom on our shared apprentices 
um, to, uh, in his wisdom to other shared apprentices in this life with Jesus. He gives them these different ways to minister to one another. So he's written this whole little track on what it means to live life together in Jesus. And the last thing he says is, here's how we really live life together. Here's how we minister to one another, keep each other going along this path. He says this, the first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. The first service. The first service. Not the last service, not the second service, not the eighth service. The first service is listening to them. Just as love to God begins in listening to his word, how do we show love? So he's saying, hey, listen, we show love to God by listening to his word. We show love to one another. That kind of second part of God's, Jesus' commandment, the greatest commandment, right? Love one another. Like we show love to one another by listening to one another. So just as the, Jesus, just as the love to God begins in listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the family is learning to listen to them. Learning to listen to them. He assumes that we don't do this naturally, right? Um, that this isn't intuitive. It is God's love for us that he not only gave us his word, but also lends us his ear. That God hears us and responds to our cries. That's the stories of scripture over and over again, right? God spoke first in Genesis 1, but he responds in Exodus 1 to the cries of his people in their enslavement. But this, this is how our scriptures work. That God's spoken so we listen, but God also lends us his ear and responds. So it is his work that we do for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. We do the work of God. We become like Jesus. We do what Jesus did when we listen to one another. Now, we become like Jesus by learning to listen to one another for the purpose of something, for the purpose of connecting one another to the presence and purpose, the actions of God in their life. We don't just listen to one another, but we listen to one another. We serve one another in listening when we listen to help connect, make connections to the presence and purpose or actions of God in their life, which doesn't always entail speaking or direct action on our part, which is hard for most of us, right? How many times have we been in a conversation? This happened to me like six times this week. When we've been in a conversation with another brother or sister when they're sharing and trying to discern and figure out what God's doing in their life. They're, they're trying to share their desires and their confusions. And all we can think about is how we're going to respond. The right word that they need or how much like us the, the, their story is. And so if I could just tell them how I did it, then that would be helpful for them. Like, I'm guilty of this more than probably most. This is what we tend to do. But truly listening, serving to listen, sometimes means that we, we, we don't speak. Bonhoeffer points out what is true for most of our church interactions. That Christians so often think they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others. That if we don't say something, then we're not serving one another. But they forget, says Bonhoeffer, that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Bonhoeffer contends that there is a paradoxical consequence to trying to take more responsibility than is ours. To play kings and queens of another's life rather than responding to one another and the Father from a quieted heart and a content soul. He says, ironically, that many people are looking for an ear that, that will listen. Right? We know that. We're, most of us would fall into that. They don't find it among Christians, though, because the Christians are talking where they probably should be listening. But listen to this. He who can no longer listen to his brother will soon no longer be listening to God either. She will be doing nothing but taking at length talking at length in a foolish or inconsequential way. He uses the word prattle, but that's what prattle means. 
He who can no longer listen to his brother will soon no longer be listening to God either. She'll be doing nothing but talking at length in a foolish or inconsequential way in the presence of God also. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. And in the end, there's nothing left but spiritual chatter and clerical condescension, arrayed in pious words. How many of us have experienced that? How many of us have contributed to that? One who cannot listen long and patiently will persist presently be, or, yeah, presently be talking beside the point and never really be speaking to others, albeit he or she will not be conscious of it. We'll just talk and we'll talk and talk. And then... In the context of others, in a group setting, but never know that we're saying nothing. We love and serve one another by listening the way Jesus did. We listen with the recognition that we're listening to the Father in the presence of others. We're listening in a place of humility and of love. Recognition that, that we listen because we believe that God is in action in their life, right? We believe that God, as we just said in, in, in Colossians, as Paul said, that the action is where Christ is, where Jesus is, and that he's in their lives, working in them, in them, through them, around them, all over those places. And so we humbly listen to what God is doing. We're in awe and humility before him. And we listen not so that we can interject our own thoughts, not so that we can be ones who solve the problem for our friends, but out of love for them. A love that will say only as Jesus did what the Father has him say, and do only as Jesus did what the Father had him do. Because he loved the Father. Because the Father loved him. Learning to listen allows us to, to stay. It's as it's, it's sanctifying for us as it is for the one that we're with. The one that we're listening to. Because it keeps us humble and loving. We start with listening to one another, not offering advice to one another, not fixing one another, not trying to mold one another into our image for them. And in so doing, we cultivate the humility, meekness, and awareness necessary to walk together for the long haul in our pilgrimage. Julian of Norwich um, she, she actually provides a really helpful posture for us to take as we learn the skill, this skill of faith, this learning to listen. She said that in her pilgrimage with fellow apprentices, she would enter into conversations with a particular eye posture, an eye movement. She says, I look at God, I look at you, and I keep looking at God. Now, that may sound a little strange, sound a little weird, but in my opinion, um, I think what she, all she's doing is she's trying to put into simple, simple practice what Paul has just said first in Colossians. To see each other's true selves in the action around Jesus and where Jesus is ruling and reigning in their life among the fellow, fellow pilgrims. That just as Paul said, keep your eyes on things above in Colossians 3. That's, what she, that's where we start. We keep our eyes where God is, where Christ is. And we recognize that where Christ is is in the life of our fellow brother or sister. And then as we look at them, we keep looking for God in them. And doing so ensures that all parties in relationship would get in on new life. That's what Paul said. Ruth Haley Barton explains it this way, um, how this posture is helpful for us as we learn to listen. He says, when I look at God or Jesus, 
It speaks to the idea that even before I start listening to the other person, I can acknowledge the reality that both of us are in God's presence. That we're both in God's action. That, that we're in this space, on this journey together, because God has acted and is continuing to act within our lives. Therefore, I can pray that I will be sensitive to God's purposes in that person's life. And in our conversation, rather than being swayed by my own agenda, which is hard, right? This is the humility part. This is the, this is the sanctifying part. Then as I look at you and listen to you, I'm not seeing you or experiencing our interaction simply in human terms. Or Paul would say in terms that are not spiritual in 2 Corinthians 2, right? But I'm, I have spiritual ears and spiritual eyes because we have the Spirit, because we've taken time to recognize in the presence of God that God is with us and amongst us. And so now I'm listening through to sense God's heart, His God's will, God's desire for you, so that I can join God in His will or desire for you. That's the key, right? That our intention is to join God with God and what God desires for you, not what we desire necessarily for you. I'm aware of myself and the other in God's presence, desiring only to be responsive to whatever God is doing in the moment, which is what Jesus did, right? That's how Jesus interacted with people and responded to people. Absolutely, he wanted something for them, but he spoke only what the Father gave him to speak. And it's a skill that we'll get to learn to along the way. So we start with listening, not advice giving or fixing or pre-measured molds, but with humility, meekness, and awareness before God's presence and will, God's desires, God's plans, God's heart for each other. And in our listening, we help one another discern our desires, what we're living for, what we're really after in this life. We do this in two ways. One is simply getting to know one another. Like there is a, re- there is a san- sanctity to um, chit-chat, <laughs> to just enjoying one another's presence, just enjoying being around one another, listening to the small talk of life and getting to know what we like and what we, what we don't. But there's also a level of something we can do more formally during the time that's necessary that's to direct our service along the way, a practice to help us um, help our brothers and sisters here respond to Jesus asking them what they want. One of Jesus' favorite questions to ask in the Gospels, and it's phrased in different ways, but essentially this is, what do you want? You just ask this question. He asks it as, what are you looking for? He asks it as, what do you want me to do for you? But he loves to ask people who are following him, whether they've come to him and they've walked with him for a while, or whether they find themselves at a desperate place and in need of him. But he asks them, what do you want from me? It's one of his favorite questions. There's two instances of Jesus' question occur back to back in one chapter, and that's Matthew 20, where I told you to turn earlier. I told you we'd get there. It took a little ways, but we got there. And don't worry, we're, we're not going to spend... Um, um, a lot of time going through it in detail, but what I want you to draw your attention to is through a couple of things. In Matthew 20, starting in verse 20, we see back to back, Jesus asked these questions in response to people who are following him, who are coming after him, who are seeking after him. The first is Jesus' response to the mother of James and John, Zebedee's wife. The fact is that she is in the company um, and voicing her desires is pretty astounding, by the way. Um, considering this is first century Palestine where a rabbi, a master, or a teacher like Jesus would not have women apprentices normally. And women were limited within the temple on how close they and therefore their prayers, sacrifices, and offerings could get to God. Even though we see over and over again in this New Testament, the scriptures, how God's turning that upside down and drawing, drawing them to himself. And so just the fact that she asked this kind of, kind of tells you she's been with Jesus for a while, right? She's comfortable with Jesus. She knows Jesus. Jesus knows her. 
He's not put off by her. She's not, she's not, at least from what we can see, like too hesitant in her approach of him and the directness of her questions kind of show that. So there's, there's this pretty deep relationship with, with Jesus. And so we kind of think that she like, kind of has already told Jesus at some point what she wants, or at minimum, because Jesus is who he is, that he already knows what she wants, right? We kind of, kind of assume that. She's been with him for a while. Her sons were some of the first ones to, 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 who Jesus invited to follow him. Um, most likely, they come from a pretty wealthy family, Zebedee's family. Um, from all that we can tell, they own several boats and several, several fishing deals. So they're a pretty successful bunch. So she had the resources to be able to, to leave that and be able to go with her sons um, after Jesus in some sort of way. And so again, she's pretty committed. She's in. She's an insider. And so it's pretty significant that she would be comfortable enough, again, to approach Jesus and speak to him on behalf of her sons, right? So there's this kind of, there's kind of mask thing going on here. She's expressing her desire that's also her son's desire, which is also her desire. So there's this whole mixture of desires, right? Which is pretty normal for all of us in, in our desires and what we're after, right? They're always related to something else. They're never quite purely just for us, or generally speaking, a lot of times. And so she comes on behalf of her sons to Jesus and requests a word from him. And then Jesus, in verse 21, simply says, what do you want? What do you want? And without hesitation, she reveals her desires, right? She reveals that she wants her sons to sit on the right and left side of Jesus on his throne. Like, remember, we just talked about this in Revelation, right? The end of Revelation 3, where, where we all get to be on the throne with Jesus. But she wants her sons to be honored and gloried in a, in a special way. She wants to make sure that their life is successful, that they live up to the expectations of the family, the success of the family, as the first and beloved disciples of Jesus as a part of the inner circle. She wants to make sure they get what all they're really kind of, what she expects for them, what she wants for them. And as a mother, is there anything necessarily wrong with that? That her children become all that she wants them to be. But here's the thing. Her desires and her son's desires, because they share it, <laughs> We see that in, um, in the, the telling of the story in Luke. Um, her desires to sit next to Jesus on his throne for her son to sit next to Jesus are not completely pure, not entirely without a little bit of, of a fault, right? The first thing we see why that's true is that what she wants from Jesus and her sons is, is again, what she kind of wants for herself isn't quite in line with the Father's desires because we see in verse 24 that their desires is detrimental to the community of companions, in verse 24, um, it says that, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Their desires, their, what they longed for, what they sought after, caused division within the family, within the, within the group. That, that's not what the father's after. He's not after division and indignation and strife. So there's something a little bit off with her desires. It causes division, and, and therefore it's an isolated from relationship. Their desire was isolated from the relationship they had with other people, with the others who were following Jesus in the same way. Her desire was also a bit naive. Jesus says um, in verse 22, you don't know what you are asking. Not only is it often that it was this isolated desire, but, but it's a bit naive, which is okay and normal, right? We're, we're not God. Like, like, we don't know all the consequences to our desires, and neither did she. We don't know all the things that we're asking for God, and if we got those, what exactly it would be like. Neither did they. She, like many of us, desires something, but the vision of the desire fulfilled doesn't see the whole picture, the cost or the consequences, which is true in our own lives, right? 
But notice that Jesus does not rebuke either the mother or the brothers. He doesn't rebuke them for causing division. He doesn't rebuke them for being naive. Rather, he presses them through the surface desire for glory and honor, for success, to faithfulness. He says, Will you be able to, are you able to drink my cup in verse 22? And then, he's, then he says in verse 23, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it, is, who had, is it, it, it has been prepared by my Father. Again, he goes back to the Father's desire, right? Takes him right back into the Father's, the Father's will. He says, listen, he takes their desire for glory and honor and combines it with faithfulness. That their glory that they seek, the honor that they seek, they'll get in faithfulness. He takes what their vision for success is, sitting next to him on the throne, and brings it back to faithfulness with God, in which God the Father will bestow honor as he sees fit. Or God will give them the desire of their hearts. He also presses them through isolation and, and, and into fulfillment, an isolation that goes from desiring fulfillment from glory and honor to fulfillment and service. In verses 25 through 28, Jesus says um, that you knew that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus presses through this idea of faithfulness to a vision of glory and honor, of being righteous and holy with God, of being successful into a serving, a humility, just as he was, into a life like his. So through their expressed and discerned desires, they found their calling, that thing to live for, participation in the life of Jesus for the sake of others. Same John who wanted this is the John who wrote the revelation that we saw, the first John that we read, like, Something changed about him because his desires were exposed. They were shown to be a little bit off, a little bit naive. And yet Jesus pressed him into the fullness of his desires. The very next scene in verse 29 finds Jesus once again responding to those seeking him. This time, two blind men who are yelling in verse 30, they are yelling at Jesus. That's what it says. It says, they're yelling, Lord, have mercy on us, the son of David. And this is both a confession of desire, have mercy, and belief. Son of David is, is a title for Messiah, is a title for one that can do something, anointed of God. And so, but whether their belief is either true belief or desperation and just hope, we don't know. But either way, they express a desire and a hope in Jesus. Unlike the John and James's mother, they haven't been following Jesus. They just heard things that Jesus can do. And so they're coming to Jesus like, all of us have at some point, just to save us, just to rescue us, just to get us out of what we're, out, what we're in right now. And what does Jesus do? Again, we would, we would assume that, um, that, that Jesus wouldn't need to ask these guys what they wanted, right? It's pretty evident. They're blind. <laughs> They're begging. They're on the road. Doesn't Jesus know what these guys want? Doesn't Jesus know what, um, what, they, what, what they're after? In verse 32, it says, Jesus stopped and Jesus called to these who were begging him, who had been, the community was trying to push away from him because they were too simple and too whatever. But Jesus says, no, bring them to me. And then he asked them this in verse 32, what do you want me to do for you? Again, we would think that Jesus would know that. 
And they, because they respond as we think that they should respond. Straightforward and obvious in verse 33. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. I mean, duh, isn't this, like, that's, that's what we want. So what did Jesus do? He compassionately gave them their immediate desire. He compassionately gave them their immediate desire. And if we stopped there, that would be awesome. That would be great. If the story just stopped there, we said in verse 34, the Jews had pity on them, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. That would be great. Jesus gives us the desires of our heart. We just go to him, we tell him, and he just does it. But, li- but, but listen, there's, there's three more or four more words that, that follow that. Verse 34 says, they didn't just see, they didn't just get to see, they followed him and followed him. I mean, that's three words. <laughs> um, they got what they desired, but discovered that what they were really after, what, what they really longed for, they didn't, they, they could only find with Jesus. Better, once they could see, once their immediate desire, this surface desire, not surface in like shallow, not surface in like something to dismiss, not surface in a judgmental way, but the most immediate surface level thing that they were after. Once they could see what they wanted, once that got met, they could see what they wanted most. Once again, Jesus pressed their desires to the core. He granted their surface desire and revealed their deepest desire, what they were really after, a life that was different than the life before a life that was wholly new than a life before, and showed them that they could find it only on the road with him. Both scenes are set within a community of followers of Jesus, though neither community was too helpful in the moment. Um, And so what we're striving to do is to not be like the community that was around Jesus in these two settings, but to be different because we can see what Jesus is doing. And so how can we help one another discern desires by responding to Jesus' question? In just a moment, we're going to actually practice this. But really quickly, let me say this one last thing. The final way we serve our fellow apprentices on a pilgrim road is we encourage them to live congruently in the union of wills into God's desire, um, desires with their own. So we listen to serve, we help discern desire, but then we encourage congruence. Now, congruent might not be a word we use in our everyday conversations, and, but that's the point. Like I'm us- We're using the word congruence to make us have to think a little bit to think about how we serve one another. Um, we tend to use the word accountability, right, in Christian discipleship circles. But we're going to replace that word with congruence so that we can think a little bit. Congruent means this. It means in agreement or harmony. It's a musical term to some degree. Like it's, it's getting in line with rhythm and pitch and all those kind of things. There's congruency. There's agreement. There's harmony. And so as our spiritual companions and friends discern their deep desires those things that drive them to action, to intentionality, we support them in making practical decisions that are in agreement and harmony with their expressed desires. We help one another be congruent, not to a mold or model that we think of, but to who God has said they are and what God has said he has for them. To make decisions that live in harmony and congruency with that. Now, this is different than just doing whatever you want or traditional accountability around some preconceived mold of the Christian life. Remember that what we get to, when we get, how we get to these desires is we discern them in relationship to Jesus via the Spirit and one another, right? We've worked our way into this, like we've worked our way to this place together. And so by delighting in the Lord, by keeping company with God together, we've come to a place where we recognize the desires of one another's hearts, the desires that God has for us, 
that God said he would fulfill for us. And so we hold each other to making everyday decisions that will help us do the will of God, help us be responsive and obedient to the desires that the Father has given them, and said he would bring forth in them as they commit and trust their ways to him. That we actually get to live out of Psalm 37, like we've been talking about. Again, paraphrasing Merton, we can say this. Spiritual companions ask in detail what we think we are living for. What desires God has given and has said he fulfills in us as we commit our way and trust in him. And they ask us what we think is keeping us from living fully in congruence with the thing that we want, desire to live for. Those are the the kind of questions we have to ask one another. When this becomes a question that we ask by those who know us, who have listened to God and to us, with us and for us, we'll be able to walk well together for the long haul. And so this afternoon, we're going to do something really quick just to kind of help us kind of get into this for half a second. So, so, um, so what I want us to do is I just want us to kind of get into a quiet space for a minute. And together, we're going to let Jesus ask us a question. Now, because, because we still live in a time and place right now where like interacting with one another is a little, we're still learning how to do that again. Well, we're going to do this practice. This would be best be done in group, in a gospel community, in a DNA, over dinner with some friends who, um, who have walked with you in faith. But right now, like, let's just kind of enter into it as just kind of a way to familiarize ourselves with it, just a tad, so it's more comfortable for us when we do it outside of this context, okay? So I want you to just do this for me, and it may seem a little strange. If you've been with us for a long time, it won't, but if you're newer with us, it may seem a little strange. But I just want you to close your eyes and take three deep breaths, As you breathe in, pray, Holy Spirit. As you breathe out, pray, reveal my heart. So with me, ready? Holy Spirit, breath in, reveal my heart. Breath out. Do that two more times. We'll just sit here for just about 20 seconds. As you sit in this quiet, what I want you to do is I just want you to choose one of those two stories that we just read. Whatever one that comes immediately to mind that you identify with most. The wife of Zebedee, one of the blind men. Don't think about it too much. Just pick one. And then imagine Jesus asking you the question he asked them. Imagine Jesus asking you, what do you want? What desires bring you to me today? Ask Jesus that question. And I think we've got some slides for this too. Um, so if you forget, you can look up on the screen. One more. There we go. Now just sit with that for about a minute, Listening. Imagine Jesus ask you the question. You can write down what you hear from Jesus. There's pen and paper in the chairs in front of you.
I'm going to do is just ask you a few more kind of deepening questions. Try to help you kind of press in as Jesus would into these desires. Again, you're asking Jesus this question. Letting the Holy Spirit give you the response. Here's the first question. I'll ask it. Then we'll be quiet. Let you sit in it. Can you sense Jesus' compassion and graciousness for what you long for but don't have yet? In both stories, Jesus was super compassionate and gracious. Do you feel that graciousness, compassion of Jesus? Next question. What does Jesus want to show you about yourself as you get honest about your desires with him? What does Jesus want to show you about yourself from a gracious, compassionate place as you're honest with him about your desires? Both stories, all the characters had their hearts revealed What is Jesus revealing about you, about yourself? Here's the intimidating question, but it shouldn't be because like you've sat in the presence of Jesus, his compassion and graciousness. Like the stories, he's revealed that you're one that he cares about, cares enough to ask what you desire. So does anything in your desire seem not entirely pure or does it seem naive? Does something seem off or just from a pers- lacking perspective? Do you see anything beyond your desire as you imagine your desire met? Something that if this was met, you would seek after more. Do you understand the full ramifications of what you're asking for? What else do you need to know from Jesus? Are you ready for what you want? Like the blind men, are your eyes ready to be open? 
the wife of Zebedee and James and John, you need to know more. What do you need to know from Jesus? Are you ready for what he desires? And he meets your desire. Just two more questions. I know we're kind of moving through it just for time's sake, but, but continue. And if you find your mind distracted, just pray. Holy Spirit, breath in. Reveal my heart, breath out. We enter these last two questions. Is there something, particular action, that Jesus is inviting you to do in order to live into what your heart wants most? Remember the will of the Father is those who hear and do the Word of God. So what is He asking you to do? Is there a particular invitation, an action? Last question. What part of your desire can only be fulfilled by Jesus? What part of your desire can only be fulfilled by Jesus? And what part is yours? In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us, and then Chaz is going to lead us in, into a time of just responding to God in song, uh, in communion. Um, but before we do that, I really do want to take, give you a chance and to remind you like, to write these things down that you're hearing. Like Again, there's paper in front of you. You have your, your phones. You can type it into it. Um, and why this was a shortened exercise and should be done in a longer setting. Don't discount what the Lord's given you today. If you're, we're going to be ones who together are responsive to God the Father, and then sometimes we need to write down the things we need to respond to. We need to work these things out in conversation with one another. Maybe over lunch, maybe with your DNA group, maybe over a meal this week, invite someone else to practice this with you. And we'll have the full lengthy practice up um, on, the, on the website and the app uh, by Tuesday at the latest. And so, um, so you can go through it again. But take a moment. Write the things down. Write something down. You don't have to. I'm not telling you if you don't write down, you're, you're off. But like, I would encourage you to. And then uh, let me pray for us. Chaz is going to come. Father, you alone know the depths of each of our hearts. You formed us. You shaped us. You know us inside and out. So search us. Grant us the grace to know our heart's truest desires because you've made them known to us. Grant that we may take delight in you and being with you and being your children.
trusting you with our truest selves, that we are who we are only because of you and in relationship to you. As we hold our desires openly in your presence, Father, and in the presence of others, of fellow apprentices and pilgrims and family of faith, grant us the courage to cry out to you. Grant us the faith to be still and to know that you are God so that we might wait patiently for you to act in our own lives, in the lives of others. We ask all this in the name of the one who died and lives and reigns, your son, Jesus. Amen. you to stand and we'll sing together. In this song, I love the progression of this song and it'll kind of do what um, we heard from Julia of Norwich this morning. We'll set our eyes on Christ and what he has done. We'll look to one another and then we'll keep looking at God. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We have died. We will rise together We will live together Oh, the body Oh, the body We are the body
Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We have died together, we will rise together. have communion elements in the chairs in front of you grab those and as we conclude um, let's receive what Jesus offers us his life for our life so together we'll confess why we need Jesus and what we're asking of Jesus together as a family of faith read with me father you have taught us to abide in you your word, and your love. In joyous obedience to keep company with you by loving you, our neighbor, and one another. Grant us the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit that we may be devoted to you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and body, and united to one another with pure and gentle affection until we have all become like Jesus inside and out. Be present, be present, O Jesus, our great high priest, who died for our sins and is alive for our living. Be present with us as you were with your disciples, and be known to us as we follow you with one another, until our real lives in Jesus becomes the only life seen to your glory and our neighbor's good, through Jesus, amen. Jesus, mighty King of heaven, Thou, O Lord, our God, shall be. Thy commission we rely on. We will follow none but Thee. Salvation, baptized now, be 
beneath the way Fall on us, oh, holy Lord Our hearts, O King, are only yours By your grace we live and we will follow Follow number D. Fearless of the world's despising, we the ancient path pursue. Buried with our Lord and rising.
Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Father, for your word today, Lord, through Jeremy, through um, Chaz as he leads us in worship through song, Father, and um, Lord, I just pray that you would fill us with your spirit this week, um, each and every day, Lord, that we would um, seek you first and foremost, Father, that our hearts would align with yours, that we would serve each other in love and listening. Um, and just speaking, Lord, the words that you would have us speak, that you would shut our mouths when they need to be shut. And, Father, that um, you would be seen um, that in each of us, um, not for us to be seen, Father, just that your um, love and forgiveness and grace um, would just pour out through each of us, Father. And so we thank you. And we pray um, this, this, this week would be one, I'm just searching your desire, Lord, that our desires, our hearts would align with yours. And we thank you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Two quick things before we close with a reading from Philippians. Good job to the kids today that remained with us. And we haven't done like a, a process like that in a while, uh, practice, and so just good job. Like, just wanted to say y'all did great. Um, Second thing, um, we relaunched our podcast uh, this summer. So Christine uh, and Rory are helping with it. We had Allie um, on this last week, and we got some more coming up with uh, Jesse and Kyler. So I just wanted to point that out. It's another way we're trying to kind of cultivate community together. Um, so let's, let's hear from God one more time. Philippians chapter 2, send us into our week. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.